This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's Think Tank Giving Thought, in which we talk about big issues and themes, big questions relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. Uh, I'm your host, Rod Davis, uh, and this is episode 23, um, in which we're asking. Is philanthropy always voluntary? Um, I guess it's worth starting by um, just saying, you know, we've kind of discussed on the podcast before quite a lot of times the idea that um, one of the pretty fundamental principles of philanthropy is that it is inherently voluntary and based on the kind of decisions of individuals about where to give. And we've covered before some of the challenges that raises when you try and use it at scale um, as a means of redistribution in society, because it's not necessarily particularly rationally distributed. Um, But what I want to uh, explore in this episode is whether there are actually examples um, in which we can find a challenge to that idea that philanthropy is uh, is always voluntary uh, in one way or another. So in this first section, um, we're going to look at uh, the idea of pressure from your peers. So this, you know, it's a pretty well established thing. We say philanthropy is voluntary. And, you know, it is it is inherently for most of us, but also most of us are aware of the extent to which pressure of one sort or another kind of uh, either avert or implicit is put upon us by those around us, either in the workplace or kind of, you know, friends and family to to give to charity or to support um, their efforts for charity. Um, and there's, you know, there's plenty of evidence about how important um, these kinds of social pressures actually are when it comes to determining how much people give to charity. And again, you've sort of touched on these um, previously, but there's lots of evidence from uh, behavioral economics, um, microeconomics, for instance, about the various ways in which our kind of awareness of the perception of others influences uh, our willingness to give. I think we've probably mentioned before the idea that you know being watched is a very, or the sense of being watched is a very important factor in motivating giving, and that that um, reaction can be elicited uh, in some quite funny ways. For instance, simply by painting pictures of eyes on a wall in which people are being asked to make donations, or even by uh, telling them beforehand that the place in which they're um, they are is haunted, so that they have a sense of being watched by a ghost. Um, or talking to them um, about uh, concepts of, of God and an immortal sort of omniscient being. So again, they're primed with the idea that somebody's watching what they're doing. And that makes them more likely to give because essentially we're kind of social animals and we're extremely worried about the the perception of others in terms of what we're doing. And this is an extremely important thread in the history of, of uh, philanthropy as well. I've probably mentioned before um, the idea that, um, you know, I kind of think the the birth of modern philanthropy or philanthropy in its modern sense came at around the time where there was um, the Reformation, essentially, in the UK, where there was a schism between the Protestant and the Catholic Church and some sort of changing notions of 
the role of charity and the way in you know the way in which it kind of either related to what happened to the donor's immortal soul after death or or in instead started to be seen as something that should be focused on within life but even after you know it started to become a slightly more secular thing uh, religious teaching played an enormous role in determining whether or not people gave and the ways in which they gave and for a long time religious teaching remained very firmly of the view that giving was an expectation or an absolute must rather than than any sort of choice and it was only really with sort of changing notions of the idea of wealth, um, largely kind of as Protestant teaching changed, that to be said, that this idea shifted. So, you know, the traditional Catholic conception of wealth was that even if you had wealth, really, spiritually, it should be seen as something of a burden. And therefore, charity was part of the, the way of kind of alleviating that burden by giving it away. But but over time, uh, various kind of teachings within um, Protestant um, theology, um, you know, the Quakers, for instance, and and other kind of dissenting groups, started to you know believe that actually making money wasn't in itself an inherent spiritual evil, and you know, as such, whilst there might be uh, sort of responsibilities to give, over time that became that sort of shifted from an absolute necessity to something that was an expectation, but a but a voluntary one. And that kind of um, started to to introduce um, the idea that we we should ask wealthy people to give, and we might want to have a sort of social expectation that we could, but it isn't something that, that can be demanded of them. And that was quite a, a fundamental shift. I mean, that being said, even in the the Victorian era there was still a very strong element of kind of religious expectation and religious peer groups um, driving philanthropy. And it it was quite a a cultural thing. I mean, the Victorians were very well aware of their own uh, philanthropic prowess. I mean, it's not that we just look back now and think, wow, they were very charitable. They, They themselves thought, wow, we are very charitable to the degree where there started to be something of a backlash to this um, philanthropic culture. Um, For instance, there was an article in The Spectator, um, interesting one, sort of starting to rail against uh, what it saw as a kind of mob mentality that had arisen around uh, charitable culture. So uh, the article said, The temptation to profess philanthropy is becoming very strong. It is the religion of the hour. In many departments of life, no one can rise fast without it. It is saturating literature and its opponents, if there are any left, are liable to obloquy of the most painful kind. They are detested alike by the good and by the mob. All men are beginning to profess love for the poor, sometimes under the most extravagant forms. Most of the novelists devote their efforts to exciting the sympathy for the disinherited, and all politicians of all parties declare that in their hearts the one strong sympathy is for the multitude. There is not a Coriolanus left, and if there were, he would be socially lynched. Which, you know, seems somewhat overblown. I mean, it doesn't seem that terrible to be asking people to be generally charitable, but uh, it was quite oppressive um, from what I understand of the prevailing culture in, in Victorian London. I guess... Um, in a more modern context, um, the idea um, of, a, of a social contract is something that we that we still see. So this is this is the idea that yes, there might not be any kind of legal burden on people to give their money away if they've made a lot, but there is a kind of ethical and moral imperative that is that is sort of built into the fabric of society. Um, we touched on this uh, slightly in in two episodes ago about the idea. Um, 
uh, kind of created versus inherited wealth and the idea that you might recognize the responsibility to give something back to the society that had made it possible for you to, to make wealth. But there are also kind of stronger versions of this. So, for instance, the philosopher Peter Singer, who's also strongly associated with kind of the utilitarianism at the heart of um, the effective altruism movement, has also written quite a lot about the the expectations that we should place upon wealthy people to to do their bit um, through paying back through taxation and philanthropy. So he had a famous paper called um, What Should a Billionaire Give and, and What Should You? Where it has to be said he didn't let any normal people off the hook either. I think, you know, from his point of view, we're all uh, there's a, a responsibility on all of us to give quite significantly. Um, and also, I think we might have mentioned in previous episodes, um, you know, interesting papers, uh, for instance, the paper by Chiara Cordelli that's um, in the uh, Philanthropy and Democratic Societies volume that I'll put a link in the show notes to, where she's arguing that actually philanthropists philanthropy should be seen as a form of redistributive redistributive justice well i did a good job of that one didn't i and as such uh philanthropists shouldn't actually be able to have much if any say over where the money goes because they should simply you know see it as a responsibility to give that money and to allow wider society to dictate where it goes there's also pressure from within the philanthropic world itself um that you know in many cases is probably the most successful form of peer pressure because very wealthy people i think prefer to be asked by other very wealthy people and we see that in um you know things like the the giving pledge that we've referenced a number of times but also more widely you know it is a definitely an element of of us philanthropic culture um that i've seen very strongly and um, certainly in companies that are you know have a, a us culture of philanthropy sort of investment banks and things you will often hear people say that if they've they've experienced working in america it it is sort of an expectation at the point at which you reach a level of seniority within an organization that you do some philanthropy it's not really kind of accepted to say no and you know that doesn't always sit that comfortably with differing cultures of of giving and i think can be quite an awkward fit for people from from the uk but you know it might well be one of the elements of why the the US remains kind of world leader when it comes to to levels of philanthropy and sort of strength of their culture of philanthropy. Okay, so that's the end of that section. Uh, In the next section, we're going to come on to looking at examples of where uh, philanthropy might actually be mandated by an authority of some sort, so there isn't really an element of choice remaining. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so as we said before the break, in this second section, we're going to have a bit of a look at some of the ways in which uh, philanthropy and charitable giving might be mandated um, by uh, authorities of one sort or another. Um, so the, the first one, I guess, is to to look at the role that governments play because they're, you know, in most cases, the most obvious authority. Um, and there's a couple of different ways, sort of interesting ways, in which they they can make philanthropy uh, somewhat less than voluntary. Probably the best known one is around the causes that the people that people are able to give to, and I guess this applies everywhere. You know, uh, to one degree or another, governments have decided. Um, which causes should count as charitable within the charity law of their country and within the sort of system of tax incentives and which shouldn't and there are things that people are perfectly free to give to 
um but you know they're um then they don't count as charitable um this goes all the way back to the you know the history of defining these things so the um the preamble to the 1601 statute of charitable uses which is sometimes called the statute of elizabeth was introduced in the uk as part of the desire to get the um the poor laws working effectively and essentially it, it was an effort on the part of government to try and di- direct philanthropic funding of which there was plenty around at the time more towards the sorts of things the government wanted um to uh to have money going on so that it wouldn't have to pay out money in in the poor laws and it has to be said this wasn't any sort of legal definition of of charity at the time and it wasn't associated with tax incentives particularly partly because there wasn't any income tax at the time but this was sort of the start of the process of government saying hang on a minute we actually want to take a view on what should or shouldn't count as charitable causes so they were starting to encroach on the free rights of individuals to to give to whatever they want in a in some sense and you know we can see this in a in a much more extreme form in various places nowadays so lots of countries for instance have lists of um you know charities that that you can uh, give to and they are ones that are primarily dictated by um by the government in china there's an interesting model that's emerged of something called a uh, a gongo or a government organized non-governmental organization which is seems like one of those sort of amazing kind of oxymorons that you sometimes get in in communist countries but um essentially the idea here is um you know the government the government of china is trying to be quite positive um as far as i can tell uh, as far as i've you know heard from talking to other people about philanthropy but it wants to do that uh, within constraints that allow it to ensure that the model of philanthropy which emerges it fits with the kind of political and cultural uh, desires of of the central party uh, and as such they they have rather than kind of allowing you know western ngos to come in or grassroots organizations in some organ in some uh, circumstances to arise they have mirrored the model of a sort of traditional non-governmental organization but had one that is government mandated you know, a gongo uh, and this you know seems like a, a slightly peculiar model uh, to us in the west but obviously china may be the kind of philanthropic powerhouse of the coming decades so uh, it may well be that we all have to get significantly more comfortable with the idea of gongos in the future a totally different model um, and, and not really to do with causes but to do with the actual act of giving itself um, is the idea of percentage philanthropy which maybe just a sort of a niche issue or a kind of strange historical quirk but it is something that you see in a few places and it's worth um, being aware of so this is the idea that you have a situation in which the government allows people to direct a certain portion of taxation towards charitable causes so the choice over whether or not to give the money is not voluntary it's taxation but the choice over where that money goes is much more uh, much freer than you would have through sort of standard redistributive taxation and public spending so there's a question about whether it's, this is really philanthropy um and or whether it's just a kind of hypothecated version of tax but i suppose if you allow a sufficiently broad swathe of things um that people can give to then actually you know it probably starts to look it starts to move beyond hypothecated tax if you're allowing people to give to things that the government wouldn't themselves have spent on 
Um, and this is something that sort of historically came about in primarily Catholic Catholic countries like Spain and Italy. Um, I think in the 19th century when there was a, the start of a division of church and state. And as part of that process, the Catholic Church um, sort of demanded that there was a provision uh, to ensure that they didn't lose out on a lot of the money that they'd historically had through kind of um, taxation. And so a small percentage, usually about sort of one or two percent in those countries, um, was uh, diverted at first just towards the church and then sort of latterly towards causes associated with the church. And in some places that's kind of morphed into a much broader um, thing, which is they've kept that percentage model, but they've allowed it to be sort of non-religious causes as well. Um, And I guess where it's been really interesting is uh, in a quite a different context where post-Soviet countries or kind of um, Central European countries, places like Estonia and Hungary, have actively adopted a model of percentage philanthropy as a means of bootstrapping civil society, basically. So in lots of these places, during the Soviet era, there was no real civil society, both because government was supposed to provide for everyone's needs, but also there wasn't really any space left for individual free association. And when you know the, the Berlin Wall came down and the, the Soviet Union collapsed and these places um, sort of entered the, the post-Soviet era, Era, they found that there was a huge space missing between the state and the individual that in most countries would be filled by a kind of vibrant civil society and they they wanted to do something about this so you know there were efforts on the part of uh foreign uh funders to to come in and start trying to build civil society but one of the things domestic governments in those places did was introduce percentage models so in hungary i think they have a two percent philanthropy uh, in Estonia, I think it's either a 1% or 2%. The idea being that for a place where there wasn't a domestic culture or philanthropy and there wasn't a healthy civil society, this might be a model for achieving both by getting people used to the idea of giving to civil society and also more pragmatically just as a means of getting some money to build all that infrastructure. It's a it's an interesting uh, model. I suppose that it does raise questions, you know, the one we touched on before about the extent to which it's philanthropy, but also, I guess, more pragmatically, how effective it actually is at building domestic cultures of giving. You know, would people shift from a model in which they were forced essentially to give through taxation, but allowed to direct a proportion of that towards civil society causes to more traditionally kind of uh giving philanthropically to those same causes and you know would they ever increase that level or would the sort of expectation have been set at one or two percent and it would be very difficult to shift i think these are these are kind of really interesting questions that i have no answers to whatsoever (laughs) the final thing i want to just touch on in this um this section about kind of being mandated by authority to give you know obviously governments aren't the only authority and sort of for many people they're not even the highest authority Uh, people who have religious beliefs often there are relevant teachings within those religions about uh, the role of charity and sort of expectations to give um, that play a huge part in in determining their approach to philanthropy um, I'm not going to go into these in, in any great detail here because we'll probably do an episode specifically on religion um, yeah, on a future podcast when I uh, build up the gumption <laughs> to take that that, uh, it, that uh, subject on but it's worth saying you know quite a lot of um, different religions or you know, most religions one way or another have some 
sort of uh, of obligation around giving to charity so you know it's well known that in uh, certain branches of christianity there's a strong tradition of tithing which is you know giving 10 percent of your your income to, to charity or the church to distribute for you each year um within uh, islam there's the tradition of zakat which happens at a particular time each year but again uh kind of mandates uh, a particular proportion uh, of your of your income that should go towards charitable causes um and you know set some parameters around the the best ways in which that that is done uh, and similarly there's a tradition of tzedakah within judaism which again um is you know a large part of why um there's a very strong uh, cultural tradition of philanthropy within the jewish faith um and you know within that again there are, there are kind of additional teachings so there are eight uh, levels of of giving i believe within tzedakah which sort of tell you things about the degree to which it should be private or public and kind of the the ways in which you talk about your philanthropy as well that, that are add a cultural dimension and for a lot of people as i say that kind of that authority from religion or from the god that they believe in um is a huge shaping force in in philanthropy and i think will continue to be a very important part of philanthropy for the foreseeable future okay um, that's finished that section uh, and then in the final section I'm going to come on to a slightly quirky set of examples about uh, when philanthropy becomes involuntary because you're a victim of your own mind so stay tuned for that okay in this final section uh, as I said before the break we're going to talk about some weird examples of uh when people might have been forced to give against their will but by their own mind or brain rather than the external influence and so this is essentially the idea of something called pathological altruism or pathological generosity which um there was a book on this a couple of years ago um by barbara oakley um which kind of collated quite a lot of interesting things about it and there's been um some good articles about it which i'll put links to in the show notes but a lot of the examples around these are ones in which people have had a medical condition of one sort or another that has affected their brain chemistry their kind of neurology and that has resulted in a strange uh, change in behavior you know a lot like the the examples you see in things like oliver sacks books when people damage part of their brain and it results in you know being able to smell colors or suddenly being able to remember everything that's ever happened and that kind of thing but there are examples in which people have those sorts of injuries and then all of a sudden become uh, generous and and give to charity and help others but to a degree that is so extreme that they actually end up harming themselves and their own family hence the the kind of pathological generosity um to one of the stories that's relayed is of a, a man called uh Jao or yao uh from rio uh, rio de janeiro in brazil um who in the 1990s um early 1990s suffered uh, a stroke and after that um became pathologically generous so he he ran a sort of food stall i think and basically people started to realize that if you came up and asked him to to give you something for free he would he would he wouldn't be able to say no and you know people started to do this and asking him for money and this kind of thing um and he gave away so much money that it essentially left his family destitute and and him with no money and very sadly i think you know he died from associated health complications in 1999 the interesting thing about about his model in a way is that it's 
he didn't suddenly become hugely philanthropic in a traditional sense. I mean, he didn't go out seeking good causes or kind of going around the favelas trying to to help um, those in poverty. It was more that he simply couldn't say no when asked, so it was a kind of compulsive thing rather than than anything to do with kind of higher brain functions. And you know, this suggests that there was a, a kind of neurological element to it. And the mechanism that's generally suggested for this, you know, there's there's evidence um, from various places that giving activates the, the sort of pleasure and reward centers in, in the brain that are linked to a thing called the um, front mesolimbic system. And also that it kind of stimulates um, neurotransmitters that are uh, also associated with other kind of um, pleasurable activities. And thinking here of neurotransmitters, particularly like dopamine, um, which again is you know something that you see around things like gambling and um, and money and chocolate and these kinds of things, as as we've discussed previously on on the podcast. And, you know, the suggestion in the, the case of, of this man called Zhao was that damage to his brain had, had damaged his his, uh, his mesolimbic system and that that had resulted in him essentially not being able to say no when asked because the pathways in his brain were such that um, it was kind of hardwired to get these rewards. So when they were on offer, he literally just couldn't stop himself from, from saying yes. And something that, that backs this up is um, another example um, that, that I came across an article, which is from a doctor who in the early 2000s um, was prescribing a drug called uh, Pramiprexol uh, to some of his patients who'd suffered neurological damage uh, as a result of Parkinson's disease. And in these patients, you know, a lot of them had um, pleasure centers in their brain were, were damaged. So they had a thing called uh, anhedonia, which is sort of in- inability to feel pleasure, um, kind of neurological pleasure. Um, and the point of this drug, which is quite an established um, medicine, was to to rebalance things um, and allow the particularly the dopamine pathways to to start working again. Although what happened in a way quite often was that when there would be side effects, because once you sort of switched that uh, that system back on, some bits of it would be kind of hardwired or, or always on. And so people would respond in odd ways. So people would start to get problems, for instance, with gambling or other things that uh, that kind of appealed to those dopamine systems. And they would be absolutely unable to stop themselves because there was no sense of self-control. And in a couple of cases, this manifested um, in the form of charity. So this doctor had a couple of patients who became pathologically generous precisely because they suffered from this and it so happened you know that once the dopamine pathways were switched back on the thing that really did it for them was charitable giving and they again there was you know quite sad cases of all of these people who couldn't stop giving away money and left themselves and their families destitute i'm not really sure (laughs) this might be a slight cul-de-sac this section and i'm not really sure we can kind of have a thought for the day or any lessons from this i guess the the most you can say is it does sort of you know as with anything where the brain goes wrong um the cases themselves are very unusual but what they tell you about is what might be happening when the brain is functioning uh properly and i guess you know they're, they're interesting bits of evidence about the role that neurology and uh kind of pleasure and reward centers in the brain play 
um, in in driving our generosity. Although I should caveat that by saying I had quite a long debate on Twitter with, with some people about whether or not functional MRI evidence was very useful uh, in telling you anything uh, about whether or not people give to charity or whether it actually constituted happiness. Uh, and I don't really want to get into that again today. Um, but I thought I would just caveat it in case any of those people are listening and you, you know who you are. Okay, so having uh, quickly reversed and pulled back out of that cul-de-sac, I think we'll draw things to a, a close. It just remains for me to say, as ever, thank you for listening. If you've got any thoughts on things we've talked about today or you know any things you'd like us to be talking about on the podcast, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Follow me on Twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis, where I bang on about this kind of stuff all the time. If you want to read any more uh, depth, uh, you know, these kinds of things, check out the Giving Thought section of the CAF website. Uh, and other than that, you know, subscribe to this podcast, tell all your friends about it, and I will see you next time. Okay, bye. Mm-hmm.